celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another edition of Deep State. You might be noticing there's an absence here. Our eminent host, David Rothkopf, is sick. But that has just given an opportunity for me, Kavita Patel, to come and talk to one of my favorite senators, not my home state senator, but a close cousin to one, if I could have one, Senator Chris Murphy from the state of Connecticut, who is probably on every single committee that is literally on high right now, foreign relations, Senate, health, education, labor and pensions, kind of right in the center of the COVID response, as well as appropriations. And I'm sure I'm missing your fourth committee. But someone who needs a very little introduction. And because we've got, uh, he's got votes, we have an agenda. And as my former boss used to tell me, he works for the people. So we need to get him to, to working. Senator Murphy, it's incredible to have you. We're yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Best wishes to, to David. Um, <laughs> I'm actually only on three committees. I, I don't know how people do more than three <laughs> committees uh, here. I guess they, from what I can tell, they just don't show up to some of them. So uh, yeah, I have a hard right. time just, just you know, handling three committee work. <laughs> the three that you're on are not that the there's a important quote, ones. Yeah. yeah, not that there's a quote unimportant committee, but I will say those are three pretty, uh, pretty high profile committees, especially now. So maybe we can dive into something that you have been incredibly outspoken on uh, not just the Ukrainian crisis, but just yesterday discussing some of the tension between the United States and India and challenges in India's stance on Russia, around Russia, as a result of, I'm sure, obviously, you've been read in more than most of us have on the President Biden's meeting with uh, Prime Minister Modi and what appears to be a reluctance to issue not just sanctions, but to support the UN condemnation of Russia and Putin. Offer some comments, if you don't mind, Senator Murphy, your reactions and kind of thoughts forward dealing with, I mean, India is uh, kind of an outlier of sorts of some other countries as well, but just discuss your reactions, please. Yeah, we had a, a, a hearing that I convened yesterday in the Foreign Relations Committee Reviewing U.S. policy towards India, um, and you know, it's it's mostly good news. We're closer to India than we have ever been. We have a deep security partnership. We have a growing partnership on climate. 
But it's true. A lot of yesterday's hearing was taken up by the fact that India has been reluctant so far to join in with the United States on sanctions against Russia or even um, on votes at the UN to condemn what Russia has done. And that is to a degree understandable because during the Cold War, India and Russia were incredibly close. The United States during that period of time was very close to Pakistan. And well, we've seen a reorientation of alliances since the Cold War. There's still a lot of vestiges of that India-Russia relationship, including the fact that most of their military, which is the second biggest in the world, if you're looking at the number of, of troops, relies on Russian equipment. So we need to press the Indians to get right on this. Um, it just doesn't look good to have the world's biggest democracy not supporting Ukraine right now. At the same time, let's be clear. Putin is dying for his invasion of Ukraine to split the United States from our allies, first and foremost in Europe, but also key allies like India. So I truly believe that his short-term goal is to win back control of Ukraine, but his long-term goal is to try to break up the alliance structure that has been constructed by the United States and Europe. So I think we've got to press the Indians to be on the right side of history here. But I do not think that we should shatter all of the work that we've done with India to grow a closer partnership um, just because they have this legacy relationship with Russia that is putting them in a different position from us right now. My parents immigrated from India. So your comment about the closeness to Russia is something I was raised with. It's very interesting, kind of in the Gorbachev era how much that plays into uh, to just everyday culture with Indians, especially in the United States. So maybe shifting gears a little bit, you alluded to this kind of where this might go, but can you discuss your thoughts about an end game? So uh, if I may, the Pentagon thought Ukraine would have fallen by now. Many of us did as well. And Ukrainians have proven remarkably resilient. Watching some of the video around their air defenses and just kind of their stance has been Incredible, but do you do you have any reason to think that Ukrainians can hold out indefinitely? Do you see the country potentially being divided or partitioned? And then, what would you urge the United States government? You've been passionate on social media and and whenever possible to kind of push the United States to do more where it's necessary. How can you help listeners understand more about what we could be doing, should be doing, actions you might take on uh, the committee that you're on, Senate Foreign Relations? I am passionate about the Ukrainian uh, cause. We got a big Ukrainian American population in Connecticut. Um, I actually have Ukrainian heritage, um, and I've been there probably more times than any other member of the Senate. I, I was actually there on the stage with John McCain during what's been come to have been called the Revolution of Dignity, which is when Ukrainians threw out the Russian-backed government and put that nation on a clear path towards transatlantic integration and. I am really proud of the Biden administration for putting together a set of coordinated multinational sanctions that, you know, frankly, much stronger and much tougher than most observers and pundits thought were was possible, such that we are, you know, right now cratering the Russian economy. I think we need to continue to flow weapons into the Ukrainian army. I think we need to pass an emergency supplemental bill through the Senate and House, get signed by the president for humanitarian relief. But I have no idea what Putin's endgame is. I don't think he knows what his endgame is, I mean, because what are his choices? This has gone very badly for him. 
he still has overwhelming force. I think the Russians will likely learn from the mistakes of the first week. It is certainly possible that they aren't able to take Kiev, but it is probable that ultimately they will be able to win control of significant portions of the country. But even if they do that, even if they do win control of Kiev, what do they do then? They install a puppet government and walk away. Okay, that puppet government will fall within a week. You'll have a million people out on the streets. They install a puppet government and keep hundreds of thousands of Russian troops inside Ukraine. They can't afford that. Certainly not with their economy cratering. That's a prescription for Putin to lose power. I don't think he has an endgame, which makes this moment so dangerous because he's going to be increasingly backed into a corner with no good choices at a moment where he frankly may just not be in a place to make sound decisions. So I think we got to watch this carefully and we're going to have to, at the right moment, be able to give him that off ramp, right? Be able to present him with what that end game is. I don't think we can see that right now, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to show him a way out at some point. Have you been surprised about the uh, inefficiency of Russian forces? I would say I've been surprised. I, I think we had all read a lot of reports after their invasion of Georgia, which did not go well regarding their modernization campaign, which I think was real. But what I think a lot of people missed is that the sort of modernizer of the Russian armed forces was booted. I can't remember how many years ago, but has been out of power for years. And you can see this atrophy of equipment that has happened in the wake of that decision. And so there was, I think, this modernization of Russian military capability. But I think there was significant backsliding. And yes, the Ukrainian resistance has been fiercer and better coordinated than the Russians thought. But I think their generals just weren't willing to speak truth to power and tell Putin that they frankly didn't have the capabilities he thought they had. Perhaps you saw it was very interesting to see uh, Poland's prime minister wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times that said that we should be under no illusions and actually quoting him tomorrow, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, as well as Poland could be next in line. So what is the kind of bright line or the red line at which the United States is actually willing to go to war with Russia? Uh, the red line has to be NATO. And that's why we are getting our troop levels in Europe you know, uh, past 100,000 and deploying them to the places where we think that fight might come next. Ukraine's not a NATO ally. Um, maybe if we um, were able to do things over again, uh, we would have uh, admitted them back in the mid 2000s. And maybe that would have led to a different decision by Vladimir Putin. But we got to make it clear if there's Russians on NATO soil, then the United States is calling Article 5 uh, and coming to our allies' defense. Do you think that coming out of this, potentially Finland or Sweden wind up in NATO? What's fascinating is, you know, Finland, this is a country that, you know, had about 15 percent support for joining NATO um, mm -hmm. just a handful of years ago. And today that number has crept above 50 percent. If you're a non-NATO ally bordering Russia, wouldn't you want to be in NATO right now? Exactly. Um, right. And, and so I, I, I think that that may be coming from some of the countries that have so far stayed non-aligned to maybe realize now that's not a viable choice given Putin's desires. Taking you across the map, which you're comfortable with, obviously, what message do you think China is getting kind of from the West rallying together or what might be unfolding vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? 
Well, I think that really, in many ways, is is the most important question because I think you're you're seeing what what we expected okay. that in the immediate aftermath of the invasion and the announcement of the sanctions, Putin's mind isn't changed. Now, these sanctions may wear him down. They may ultimately present such a risk of regime change that he decides to pull out of Ukraine. But the most important message we're sending here is maybe to China about what cost they will bear if they do something in Taiwan. And so I'm really glad that a lot of unlikely allies have joined us. We talked about India not being ready to be there, but there are lots of countries that you wouldn't have thought joining us in these sanctions or these votes of the UN that have, like Turkey, for instance, which has been an ally of Russia at times, closing the straits to Russian naval traffic. Serbia voting with us uh, at the UN, a country that had been, you know, uh, militarily aligned with with Russia during parts of the last uh, several decades. So I think that signal to, to China is a strong and a good one. Let's shift to domestic matters. COVID-19, the recent State of the Union kind of response where we clearly seem like we're shifting to a, you can call it living with COVID or just moving into a different phase. You and Senator Lujan had a what I think is probably one of the most important elements that has not been highlighted enough and probably could not be emphasized more around legislation to combat health misinformation. It's actually something that I was very critical. The White House had an incredible action plan, 96 pages, covering everything from prevention to treatment to surveillance to global equity with, I would say, Senator, probably 250 words if I'm being generous on misinformation and a request that went out today from the White House and the Surgeon General's office for big tech companies to, quote unquote, voluntarily give data on misinformation. You can see my cynicism being expressed. Do you mind just discussing? Obviously, this seems like something important to you. Just talk through like where, you know, it seems like such a large problem to tackle, yet probably the most important one. How do you see going forward tackling disinformation about public health uh, science? But that extending to January 6th, to voting rights, to critical race theory, to education. Well, I mean, first, let me say thank you to you, Kavita, for your you know, work on, on this issue. I know you've got a sort of a legacy on, on making sure people pay attention to the importance of good information in healthcare decision making. I mean, listen, I, uh, let me tell you just a quick story. So I do this thing every year where I walk across the state of Connecticut. I spend about a week and I walk 100 miles from one end of the state to the other. And I talked to hundreds of people. And these are people that don't watch MSNBC, barely know who I am, right? But, you know, have real problems that they need solved. And mm-hmm. so I just remember one conversation from last fall. I did it, I think, in October of last year. And I'm sitting on a park bench in Middletown, Connecticut, with an older guy who had voted for Trump. And he was just so upset about his inability to get good information about anything. He kind of soured on Trump. He didn't know who he was going to support moving forward, Democrats or Republicans. But he said, the one thing I know is that I have no idea where to go to get reliable information. I used to know. I used to be able to you know, turn on the news at night and, and get the information I needed. I used to trust the newspapers. But now the newspapers are four pages long and I got to go online. And who knows who's right and who's wrong? And he's reflecting a broader deepening anxiety in the American public about good information. And of course, it has been so acute during the pandemic when people literally need good information in order to stay alive and they don't know where to go. 
And we're not spending money trying to help people become information literate when it comes to their healthcare. We're, we're not doing the basic blocking and tackling of telling people what's good information, what's not good information. And so thanks for highlighting this bill. Senator uh, Lujan, who, man, has had a tough last month. He yeah. had a stroke. He just came back to the Senate today. And he and I are going to be leading this effort to try to get some money appropriated to set up a program at the federal government that translates to consumers and healthcare patients where you can get good information and where the big sources of misinformation are to be suspicious of. So I, I, I'm excited to try to push this issue forward. And because uh, we're going to keep to time, I might be the only doctor that stays on time. So, but it never happens with my patients, by the way. So <laughs> I will, I will do it here though, because it's important to get you to vote. You have been an incredible champion, gun control, thinking about advocacy for gun victims' rights. And I just want to ask, because it hasn't received as much attention, just given all the noise, but we've seen some incredible progress in terms of what families have been able to hold manufacturers responsible for. Can you talk about gun control, what more we could be doing, Congress, Biden, or what you kind of have planned forward? Well, and as you know, this is a public health epidemic, right? right. I mean, it's a different public health epidemic than COVID is. But you know, what we know is that if you live in one of these neighborhoods with elevated levels of violence, whether or not you are shot, your brain chemistry is just different because you're living through trauma and expected trauma that you know releases these chemicals into your brain that corrupts your circuitry that makes you un unable to learn. So it's not a coincidence that all the underperforming schools, quote unquote, are in the violent neighborhoods. This is a generation of kids that we're losing in places like the north end of Hartford, the east end of Bridgeport. And we've got to think of it that way. So listen, we are at a log jam in Congress right now. Um, I have tried everything I can to get Republican support for things like universal background checks, which absolutely would save lives. I, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get 60 votes in the Senate. So we've got to ask our friends in the Biden administration to take executive action. Um, and that involves banning the illegal sale of ghost guns. That involves pushing more sales through the background check system under the current law. And that involves getting an ATF director who can go after the gun traffickers. Um, the administration can do more. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit more urgency from the Biden administration on the issue of guns. And you know, that's where a lot of my focus is going to be for the next few months is getting the administration to take some of these actions that can remove illegal guns from the streets. 2020 and 2021, two of the worst years in our lifetime for gun violence in this country. We didn't see as many mass shootings, you know, 20 people dying at a time. So we were lulled into the sense of complacency. But no, in fact, on a daily basis, more people have been dying from gunshot wounds in these last two years than, you know, any time in the last 20. Yeah, it's a statistic that's completely underreported. And I'm right. glad you talk about accountability for the administration, because I will say a lack of an ATF leader not having and some of the other confirmed and even SES appoint, political appointments that could take strong action in this area has been, to be honest, a, a misstep. And just and hopefully you can hold uh, hold the administration accountable. That's what we'll ask you to do. So thank you so much, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut and somebody who can truly navigate domestic foreign policy and beyond. So we're excited. Next time we can talk about, you know, the Space Force, perhaps, and, and have you come back to Deep State. Spending time with you will all, uh, hopefully make us not only smarter, but give us some tools for thinking about these complex issues. So thank you, Senator. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. 
We've come to the end of our general podcast. We'd like to thank Senator Chris Murphy for joining us today. If you're a member, please stay tuned for a COVID Q&A with Dr. Kavita Patel. If you're not a member, please visit thedsrnetwork.com and click membership levels for more information. Members receive access to bonus content, member briefs, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter. Thank you and stay healthy, everyone. Bye-bye.